Please turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 3. If you're using the Black Pew Bible, that can be found on page 955. 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 18 to 22. It's the last paragraph of chapter 3. And this text that I'm about to read to you, the well-known Protestant reformer Martin Luther, not to be confused with Martin Luther King Jr., Martin Luther, 500 years ago, the German Roman Catholic Bible teacher and scholar who protested against Catholic doctrines in October of 1500-something, I forget the date, 1517? Yes, 1517. And 500 years ago, we remember that momentous occasion for those of us like Embassy Church who find ourselves in the Protestant Reformation. That man, Martin Luther, who translated the entire Bible from Greek into German. In German churches, they still use his Bible today. Um, He said of this text, this is of one of the most obscure passages in all of the Bible, and to this day, I do not understand what Peter is saying. So what hope is there for us? You might be wondering. 1 Peter 3, 18 to 22. So, before I read the text, I have a challenge for us all. I like to run, and when I run um, throughout the years, many times, especially when I'm in kind of a racing mode, I run the hills faster. Like when, when the road gets harder, I lean into it. And I think for Bible reading, there are texts that are easy and flat, and then all of a sudden it inclines, and it's getting high into the heavens, and you're like, what in the world's going on here? And it'd be easy for you to turn around and go the other way. It'd be easy for you to start walking. I want you to take on Phil's running regiment in your Bible studies and run the hills. When we get to verse 19, what you're going to see is 18. It's it's pretty straightforward. It's super encouraging. It's like, I like that. Then we're going to get to 19, and you're like, whoop, real high. I mean, we're talking 90 degree straight up what's going on. And it doesn't stop in verse 19. It continues in verse 20 and 21. And so, here's the challenge. Don't just be a person who walks the hills or turns around. But I really sincerely think if we don't lose the forest for the trees, you should be able to either in your own household, parents with young children, to explain this text to them today. That's my goal. If you don't have young children in the home, there's lots of young children around. What better thing to do after church today while the kids might be trying to run around and be like, hey, I want to explain to you 1 Peter 3, 18 to 22. Give it a go. See if you can know this text well. Run the hills with me. Who's ready? Thank you, Robert. Let's follow along as I read God's word. Starting in verse 18, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive 
in the Spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. And thus ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. And my prayer is that all of us would be able to teach one another this text. It's glorious. Amen? So let me help you out. Before you get lost in the weeds, in the details, in the individual phrases and verses, look at verse 17 of chapter 3. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Peter is writing to a group of Christians in the early church, and he is telling them how to suffer. And the posture and the lifestyle that would, at times, if it be God's will, God allowed suffering into their life, Christian suffering in particular, that they should suffer for doing good, doing good deeds, being righteous. So he makes that statement. It's a good summary of what we've just been talking about, and it's a good summary of a big theme of the whole letter, how to suffer well as a Christian when persecuted for your faith. Look at chapter 4, verse 1. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Now that phrase, ceased from sin, is very much confusing again. That's another hill to climb next week. But isn't it obvious that bookending our obscure text that Martin Luther's like, I don't know what it's saying, Let's just step back and see the big picture. Christians suffer like Christ. Christian suffering, it's Christ-like. In fact, if you'd like a short little way to explain this to a child today after church, I think that's a great big idea. Christian suffering is Christ-like. So then, in terms of a practical encouragement, if you want to be a Christian, you should be willing to suffer like Jesus Christ. Put that together. Christian suffering, it's like Christ. It's not the exact same, but it's very similar to Christ's suffering. So then, if you're going to be a Christian, if you'd like to be baptized, you're signing up for being willing to suffer for Christ. That's what our text is trying to teach us. I think every single thing in verses 18 to 22 is making a comparison with Christ's suffering to encourage Christians how to suffer well. So when you look at our text, verses 18 to 22, there's no commandments, there's no instructions, it's all descriptions about the sufferings of Christ. But notice the key words, for or because, because of what? Because of what he just said in verse 17, Christians should suffer for doing good things. 
Why, why should they do that? Because Jesus did. Chapter 4, verse 1. Likewise, similarly, just like Jesus in his suffering, you should have the same mindset, the willingness to die for your faith. That's the big idea. Don't get lost in the details. We're going to zoom in, but then we got to zoom back out. You got to zoom in, and then you got to zoom back out. And so let's do that one at a time through this text, remembering that this is the big idea. Suffer like Jesus. Be willing to. And we're going to do this by learning three lessons about Christ's suffering. That's what our text is telling us. Three things about Christ's suffering. Number one, we should suffer like Jesus because, he gives reason number one, it produces good. It produces good things that God has planned for his eternal purposes. That's verse 18, but mostly just the first half of 18. So we're going to look at verse 18, we're going to zoom in, and we're going to see that Christian suffering is Christ-like because Christians, when they suffer for doing good, it produces good. Second, Christian suffering is Christ-like, and we should be willing to suffer because it proclaims good news. It doesn't just produce good things, it proclaims victory over sin and the evil powers of this world. That's verses 18b, the second half of 18, and 19 and 20. Christian suffering, it produces good, just like Jesus' suffering produced good things. Christian suffering proclaims victory, hope beyond this world, just like Christ's suffering proclaims victory. Third, and finally, Our text concludes with the glorious resurrection and ascension of Christ and comparing that with baptism, we need to remember that Christian suffering is like Jesus. It's Christ-like because it portrays, just like baptism does, the power of God over death. Let's do it one at a time. That's the big picture. We've zoomed out. Let's zoom in. Point one, suffer like Jesus. Be willing to and suffer in a Christ-like way because Christian suffering will produce God's good eternal purposes just like Jesus's. This is the flat part of the text. This is the easy, downhill, glorious, good news on the surface. You just read it and you should memorize it, love it, and encourage your soul with this truth. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Let's pause there. Be willing to suffer because you know it produces good. Did Jesus' suffering produce good? Absolutely. Jesus suffered by doing good, by dying, suffering for sins. See the reason for his suffering? Why did Jesus suffer? For sins. He died for the penalty and payment of sins. Look at the next phrase. The righteous one who never sinned, who never committed evil, chapter 2 says, never said a bad word out of his mouth, never had an intent in his mind or in his heart that was evil ever, the exact opposite of our Genesis 6 reading, humans on this earth, the mind in the, the heart, evil continually all the time. The righteous one died for the unrighteous. For sins, for the unrighteous, 
The unworthy, the undeserving, the people that shouldn't get to heaven get to God. That he might bring them to God. Do you see the goodness of Christ's suffering? In fact, if you don't, then it could be that you're not even a Christian. Like before we talk about Christian suffering, this is Christianity in a densely packed phrase. Christ died for sins. The righteous one for the unrighteous to bring you to God, which is the goal of everything. The goal of why you exist, the goal of why we're here today in this church service is for you to be with, dwell with, commune with the living God. That's why you were made. So brother or sister, we want to talk about your suffering as a Christian. But before we talk about you, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, I would hope that this text will be very, very simple and clear. You have sinned against a holy and righteous God. You are not the righteous one. In this text, you are the unrighteous one. Your sins, sin is a simple word. It's like a bow and arrow. You're shooting at the target and you missed the mark. And it's not like you got close to the bullseye. It's like somebody bumped your elbow and whoop, you shot and it went the entirely different direction. Sin is missing the mark. The mark of what? The mark of God. The mark of communion with God, of submitting to God, of the goodness of God. So you must come to terms with the fact that each and every one of us in this room, we're here as Christians because we have first admitted we've sinned. And the wages of those sin is death. By Christ suffering on the cross, he suffered in our place. Is that not more clear in this text than almost anywhere else in the Bible? The righteous one died in our place for the unrighteous ones who should have been on that cross. He took our place. So when you see the Savior there, you should see that that should have been you and me hanging on that cross. Christ died for sins once. Oh, the sufficiency of the death of Christ for every sin, past, present, and future. Every sin you've ever committed, every thought you've ever had, every bad desire of your heart. He only needed to die once. Once and for all, the book of Hebrews is going to repeat this idea. Put your faith, non-Christian, in the sufficient death of Christ on the cross for you as an unrighteous one. Turn from your sin. Embrace the free gift of being transported into the heavenly realms with Jesus Christ and taken to God, not by the merits of your goodness or your resume or anything that you could ever do, but solely on the basis of Jesus dying on the cross. That's the first place to begin for all of us in this room. But secondly, all of you in this room, you may have heard this story before. And you may have, for some of you, repented of your sin and been baptized and appealed to God for a good conscience. And your, your life's been changed. And so some of us, we need to remember that to follow Jesus, to be a Christian, is to invite suffering like Christ that produces good. It's not something strange. Don't, don't be surprised by the fiery trial. Look down at chapter 4. Verse 12, beloved, 
Do not be surprised at this fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when its glory is revealed. Suffering as a Christian is a test to produce good for your joy. Turn back to chapter 1. Verse 6, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus. Christian suffering is Christ-like. Mom, Dad, what was the sermon about today? Christians should suffer like Jesus because Christian suffering is Christ-like. When we're willing to lay down our life and suffer in any way, even the most ultimate way, giving up our lives, it produces good. It purifies our own heart and it proclaims the gospel, which is our second point. It produces good in your heart, it tests you, it refines you, but it also proclaims the gospel. When you endure suffering, just like Jesus, but his in a much greater way, but in a similar way, you share in his sufferings, Peter says, then you too can proclaim the gospel with your endurance of suffering. So let's look at it. This is the one that people struggle with, but if you don't lose the forest for the trees, I think you'll see it. It's Christ-like suffering that proclaims something good, victory over evil. So let's start at 18b. This is the second half of 18. For the sake of just repetition and goodness, let's read all of 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. That we've covered. Christ's suffering produces the good news of salvation for sinners and unrighteous people that can now be in a relationship with God. Amen. Hallelujah. What is he saying next? Jesus Christ was put to death in his human flesh. But he was made alive, and I think a better translation should be, even though this is hotly debated, by the Spirit. The first is about what Jesus was like, meaning he was in a human body, and he was put to death on a cross. Then he's saying, but he was made alive by the power of the Holy Spirit. This is all over the Bible in terms of this kind of language. It corresponds with so many different texts that I don't want to get into. I just want to lay down, this is what I think it's saying, and tell you that Jesus' suffering on the cross was not the end of the story. He was put to death. He was murdered. His life was taken from him. He was hung on a cross. He was suffering innocently. He was unjust and unjust suffering. But God, through the power of the Holy Spirit, made him alive. Do you see the contrast? Even if you're not keen on the prepositions and why they should be in versus by, isn't it obvious? Put to death is being compared with made alive. And what's the most natural, simple way to understand that? He died on a cross and then he rose again from the dead. If you're tracking with that reading, which I think is the superior reading, then keep reading the confusing part in verse 19. And really all of it makes a lot of sense, at least to a certain degree. Peter just said in verse 18, 
Jesus died in his human body on the cross in his flesh, but through the power of the Holy Spirit, God made him alive. And in his resurrected and ascended status, this proclaims to the spirits who are in prison, those spirits who did not obey in the days of Noah. And so now you have to realize that he's referencing a story that many of these people, Jew or Gentile, would have heard of before. So let me just pause real quick as a way of illustration. How many of you have ever heard of the word and concept purgatory? Raise your hand, please. I need participation. Okay, for those of you that are listening or not looking, that's pretty much the majority, if not 99% of the room, raise their hand. Now, part two of this. How many of you have read extensive literature from Catholic Roman theology on purgatory? Anybody? For those looking around, it's one, maybe two people that have raised their hand. Meaning, there is a concept about the afterlife. There is a concept in Bible and theology that all of you have heard of before, but almost none of you have read about before. If that simple concept makes sense to you right now in this room that we just experimented with, the book of Enoch and the spirits in prison is the same exact way. It's like referencing purgatory and be like, yeah, I know. I, I've heard the word before. I have a general idea. Some of you might know a little more or a little less. Grew up to Catholic school. Some of you didn't. But the general idea, that's what Peter's doing. He's throwing something out there that he assumes his readers know, which is that in the days of Noah, there was a rebellion and that these evil spirits were put in prison. We don't need to get into any more details. Just know that that's what Peter's doing. The purpose of why he's doing it is what? Evil spirits are heavenly creatures. These evil spirits came down to earth and did evil, wicked things and corrupted the earth. And then they were punished for it into the grave. Many, many years later, a spirit from heaven, the second person of the triune God, he would descend down from heaven and he would intermarry his body, his spirit with a human body through the virgin birth of, of Mary, he would live a perfect, righteous life, and then he would die on a cross and be buried in a tomb. He went down into the grave. Do you see the parallels? A spirit from heaven came down to earth, and instead of doing wickedness, he was righteous. But he suffered the same fate, down into the grave. Do you remember what verse 18 said? Put to death in the flesh, just like the evil spirits. No, but made alive by the Holy Spirit and this resurrection from the dead proclaims the victory over death, evil, sin, Satan. That's what's going on. In the days of Noah, there were evil spirits. Everybody would have known about this story. Some of you may already know about this story. Some of you do, some of you don't, doesn't matter. These people do it. They knew a story about evil spirits being punished, but there was a spirit that left heaven and came to earth and it wasn't punished. It was rewarded for that suffering. It rose up out of the grave. It conquered the tomb. It rose from the dead and then ascended to the highest place of heaven. That's where this text is going. So, do you see the simple idea? Kids, you listening? What's the sermon about, mom and dad? Suffering as a Christian is like Jesus. That even when I die, my death is not the end of the story. And I will be raised again from the dead. And even death itself does not have a hold on me. 
There's that song we sing. Death is a, death is a doorway. Death is a doorway to resurrected realities forever. Can you think of any worse thing in your life right now than dying? For a Christian, that's not the worst thing. A nurse one time told me that they had a little saying in their nursing hall. And she said, we see a lot of people die in the hospital. But there are some things that are worse than dying. Christians should amen and believe that with all of their heart. There's something worse than dying. It's being separated from God for all of eternity. Verse 18 declares there is a way to God. There is a way for eternal separation from God to be no longer a problem for you. You have access to the throne of heaven because Christ is there as our representative, as our high priest, as our king. So realize that Christians, when you suffer, it produces good. It produces good in your heart and it proclaims good news, just like Jesus. In fact, Peter's already mentioned this. Look back in chapter 3. Think about your own suffering. And look at verse 16 in chapter 3, or, or sorry, 15, when it says, But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, and always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect and have a good conscience. So that when you're slandered, when, when you suffer, when you're reviled, your good behavior in Christ will lead them to be put to shame. Do you realize that what Peter's been saying, even just last week in our previous text, is that if you're willing to suffer for doing good, people will look at you when they revile you and slander you and say, you seem to be unaffected by that like I was expecting. There's some kind of hope in you. Enduring suffering preaches hope. I'll kill you. So, not that it's flippant. I mean, it would be terrifying to have somebody look at you and say, I'll kill you. But ultimately, in the grandest sense of it, there can be a peace to walk down the road of death. Even if that's forced upon you by somebody doing evil against you. How do you know? Well, if you're united in Christ's suffering, if you're a Christian, then your Christian suffering will result in resurrection victory over all of your enemies. It preaches hope. Ladies, you should remember when Pastor Nate earlier in the month preached to us, he said in chapter 3, verse 1, that you can win people over without even saying a word by your conduct. That's 1 Peter 3, 1 and 2. Enduring the suffering of an ungodly, disobedient husband can preach hope by your conduct. Do you see how enduring suffering throughout 1 Peter, it preaches something. It communicates something. Actions are, what do they say? Louder than words. I still think we need to proclaim the gospel. Don't get me wrong. Words are necessary, but so are your actions. And they preach a powerful sermon. And some people would argue like Jesus went down into hell and preached some kind of message to get people out of hell. I don't think that's an appropriate translation or teaching of this text. I think that the death, resurrection, and ascension of Christ proclaims to every single being that exists in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. Christ's suffering won. 
the willingness to humble himself and become a slave and a servant in human flesh and die for unrighteous, ungodly people produced the powerful good news of resurrection hope and brought about a change in this world. We've never been the same since. So, Christians, we suffer like Jesus. We should be willing to suffer like Jesus because it produces good, it proclaims hope in the gospel. Third and finally, baptism. Peter now goes from the story of Noah, he's thinking about water, and then he goes, oh, by the way, baptism is like this. Baptism corresponds to this, and honestly, it should make a lot of sense. Death and floods go together, not only in the flood story, but throughout the Psalms and the Old Testament. Jesus, when he died on the cross, is being described in, in, in metaphorical terms as swallowing up the flood waters of God's wrath. He died for sins, the wrath of God against sinners. What's the first story in the Bible that shows the wrath of God against sinners? The unrighteous, the flood story. But notice that it was through the flood waters that Noah's ark raised up to the highest mountain and he got off the ark and worshipped God through the waters, up the mountains, to worship with God. Do you see the story? That's, that's not just the flood story. That's the Jesus story. That's the Christian story. Through the flood waters, through the baptismal waters, we ascend up through the ark that is called the cross of Jesus Christ, and we have access to worship God, being brought to God in communion with him. That's why he's thinking about baptism now corresponds to this. It's like this. It's an analogy. If you're going to become a Christian, what's the first step? Do you remember? This was from point one. Admit you're a sinner and die to your sin. Baptism portrays the depiction of a person being raised down into the water, and that pictures somebody dying in the water, being swallowed up in death. But in the same way that Jesus rose again from the dead, made alive by the powerful Holy Spirit through the resurrection of the dead, we can now, through the Holy Spirit, not because we got a little bath and, and dirt got removed from our physical body, but the appeal to God of a new and good conscience, being made new from the inside by the Spirit through the resurrection, we now are saved. Baptism doesn't save us by a removal of dirt. The ritual of getting in the water is symbolic, not effective to save you. The effective salvation is the once for all death of Jesus on the cross. And when you receive that death by faith and faith alone, you portray it through baptism dying to sin, being raised to new life. So parents, we've got a lot of young kids in this church. I think it's extremely important that when we're talking about baptism, we're encouraging our kids to know that when Pastor Phil were to dunk you down into the water, that means your old way of thinking and living, it's dead. It should be no more. You don't want to lie. You don't want to treat your brother or sister with unkindness. You want to be generous. You want to be loving. That old way, it's dying in the water. And Jesus, by the power of the Holy Spirit, gives us new life to live a new kind of way with a good conscience, 
That's what baptism is about. So we should have these kind of conversations in our homes to make sure it's clear to them that if this baptism practice is going to happen, it should be a portrayal of what's already happened in one's heart. And then that will proclaim when we testify to the changing power of the gospel, when we share our testimonies and when we go down into the water, it proclaims the good news and victory of Jesus over sin that leads to death. Furthermore, parents, I would strongly urge you to get to the core of repentance and faith by encouraging your kids to think about the cost. Christians who get baptized are signing up and pledging themselves. That's another way to say an appeal to the good conscience. I'm pledging. I'm signing up. Sign me up for suffering. I'm willing. I don't want suffering. I don't want to have a miserable physical ailment the rest of my life. I don't want people to revile me. I don't think that we're saying, I can't wait to be teased and mocked and made fun of. But you are signing up to say, the world will mock you. Do you understand that, child? This is not swim time playing in the water. This is a simple ritual where water communicates the flood was defeated. The wrath of God was absorbed. The death of Jesus was effective. New life by the Holy Spirit is possible. So let baptism mean something at Embassy Church. Parents, church members, elders, baptism should portray gospel, death and resurrection. So what's our text about? Mom and dad, what was the sermon about? Christians, they suffer like Jesus and they should be willing to suffer like Jesus. Why? Why would anybody be willing to bring about suffering in their life? Because it'll produce good, it will proclaim hope, and it will portray victory over every power of this world. Those things that are seen and unseen. Angels in heaven, authoritative government rulers, any power you could imagine. What a glorious good news here on this Pentecost Sunday. Jesus Christ is still alive and reigning in heaven as our king. Christ is the word for king. He reigns. He rules. Death didn't defeat him. The grave couldn't hold him. The spirit's been unleashed. Has that news dropped into your heart? Have you repented of your sin? Have you believed upon Jesus with all of your heart and said, sign me up even for suffering? Because that is better than any other option you could give me. I hope and pray that 1 Peter 3, 18 and 22, no offense to Martin Luther, isn't that difficult? Christian, be willing to suffer like Jesus. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we want to pray now in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, our high priest, our king of all kings, our Lord of lords, and in his name we pray that the Holy Spirit would do mighty works of conversion, 
of regeneration, of, of change and transformation in the hearts and lives of children, of non-Christians, of adults, of seasoned 40, 50 year Christians in this room. Embolden us to live our lives in such a way that it would proclaim hope as we endure suffering, suffering in the home, suffering in the workplace, suffering with government. Oh God, encourage us with the reality that everybody we would ever submit to is ultimately going to submit and is now submitting to King Jesus. We need encouragement. We need reasons. We need the gospel. So I pray that as we eat the bread and as we drink the cup, that the gospel truth of participating in Christ's death, his body, his blood, that it would not seem little or ritualistic. It would seem big. It would seem huge. It make all the difference for how to just get through another day or week with whatever we're struggling with, especially Christian suffering. So I want to pray that you would strengthen Embassy Church, you would announce the gospel through our actions and our words, and that you would save many for all authority in heaven and earth is at your right hand in Jesus Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.